Welcome to season three of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekis-Wolf. This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley is brought to you by The Bold Italic. Yasha, you're CMO of a pretty large company. If you were running communications at Facebook right now, it would be the first thing that you would do. I don't think we have enough time to talk through this, Anil. <laughs> uh, we don't on our intro, but fortunately, we invited a great guest today, Jessica Powell, uh, the former head of communications at Google and now an author. Uh, an author that's got a really strong view into the way that people actually exist inside of technology companies and how technology companies just forget that sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, hearing Jessica and how she processes information and thinks about communication to the outside world, I think it was a really refreshing uh, look. Yeah, uh, not a lot of sarcasm, um, some optimism that's in there, like a really strong, grounded conversation in exactly what's going on right now. We hope you enjoyed today's interview. So. Hey, thank you for being here today. We're Thanks excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Um, so we wanted to start out and get a bit of a sense for where you grew up, but not just where you grew up, where you grew up, really thinking about the Bay Area. Was there ever a point in your young life that you said, I want to live in San Francisco? No. Um, I mean, I didn't even know what San Francisco was. I grew up in Southern California. Um, I mean, it was it was probably as relevant to me as New York or any other large city. The closest big city was L.A. That seemed thousands of miles away yeah. and a place that you would avoid if you could. Aren't you obligated to dislike Northern California if you're from Southern California? Yeah, that's, I feel like that's really a Northern California thing. Like, I think Northern California, they go on and on, oh, our water, our water, and they get a little, like, yeah. they go very fuzzy on the details about Mono where the water's coming from. Mono Lake, Yeah, yeah. But I think I think it's Northern California that hates Southern California. I think Southern California doesn't think about Northern California. Dodgers or Angels? Um, I think I'm supposed to say the Angels, but I don't even know what happened to them. I don't think they're in Orange County anymore, right? Aren't they the Los Angeles Angels? But maybe they're they still, still play they in just Orange changed County. The name. Yeah, are they still playing Anaheim. Yeah, try me on another bit of sports trivia. Let's see how this goes. Want to talk hockey? Lakers or Clippers? Um, uh, the Lakers. Okay. Because my dad was into the <laughs> Lakers, so I feel like I can talk about you know some of like 1980s era. Le- LeBron or Kobe. Oh, I think, Le- yeah, LeBron, for sure, LeBron. Yeah. He just seems like a better person, He's right? He's from Cleveland area, so that's like a layup <laughs> for him. So, like rural Southern California or in a city no, in no, West su- Los Angeles? No, suburbs, suburbs. Suburbs, yeah. What city? One peach house that looked like a bunch of other peach houses. Um, uh, Orange. Which... Oh, yeah, I know Orange. Really? Why? Yeah, yeah I've been through. Uh, my wife's family lives in Irvine. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah so right by there. I mm-hmm. went to school in Whittier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 605 in the 60. Yeah, I used to swim in Whittier, yeah. Ah, cool. So there was never a, a thought about San Francisco other than hey, San Francisco is like a big city, kind of like New York is. No, I mean, I think, you know, I um, I think like most kids, when you're growing up, what's most relevant to you is what's immediately around you. I mean, to a certain degree, we're still like that, right? Even yeah. as adults. Um, and so the idea of San, San Francisco was a very abstract place that you could have popped in any city for. I'd never been there. I don't think, I'm sure my parents knew people in San Francisco, but never had come up here, didn't know anything about it. So, you know, when you were living in Orange, did you ever unwind by doing a 10-day meditation retreat? <laughs> I think my parents called that grounding, right? Um, but uh, no, I um, never had the, um, the Jack Dorsey experience. Okay, okay. Well, so what do you, th- what do you make of that? So you have, uh, you know, you, you ran comms at Google. And uh, I'm just curious, play armchair comms person for Twitter. If you see Jack tweeting about his uh, his 10-day silent retreat in Myanmar, 
what do you do as a comms professional if you were working at Twitter right now? What's your what's your reaction? Walk me through your thought process. Well, I think it's interesting, right? If you're whether you're Jack or you're Mark Zuckerberg or anyone who owns like or created a social media platform, you have to use the platform. Probably well past like at some point you probably grow tired of your platform too, but you have to use your platform. Like you you are the best spokesperson for your platform in a lot of ways. And tied to that, there's such a desire particularly now, I think, to know CEOs or to feel like you know who the, the, the men, because they're usually men, the men behind the product are, that every, every that when you get to the point where you even have a comms person or you're even thinking about it, um, you, you're trying to kind of, you, you want to appear human. So, of course, you're putting on, you know, Zuck and all of his, like, here are my, you know, here's each of my, like, perfectly photographed, <laughs> choreographed photos of my family and my dog and my kids and me traveling across visiting cows across America. Um, all of that is, it's, it's all marketing, right? It's a marketing of the self. It's a marketing of the product. And then that stuff all intersects. So I think what's what's a little hard is you're, you're, you've got that. You've got, you know that, that people want to know you and that it's part of how you put yourself out there um, is, is how you're going to achieve that. Then you've got this other piece of it, which is um, you are incredibly wealthy. You are um, most of the people that are replying to your comments. Usually, you'll have like a couple of the crazies that are like your platform sucks, but the vast majority of people that are following you are following you because they like you or they're interested in you. So every single time when you're posting things, for the most part, you're getting really positive reinforcement back, combined with your superpower from your own company. And so for the most part, I think a lot of these CEOs are just constantly surrounded by this like aura of greatness. And so they think sometimes too, and I think Elon has this as well, that they can put these things out there and that they're not going to be, I think they think of themselves as more Teflonic, if that was a word, yeah, than yeah. they actually are. Anyway, so he so he puts it out there and I'm sure it came from this genuine place of like, let me share with you my experience of going to a place where there's ethnic cleansing. <laughs> but he doesn't mention that. He just talks about this, this experience. And I don't begrudge anyone... Um, their gurus or their you know meditation or their yoga practice I mean it, that's fine um, and certainly if it leads to self-reflection that's that can only be a good thing but it didn't seem like there was much self-reflection there and I don't I suspect there probably wasn't a communications person involved which makes sense because Twitter keeps firing them so which so you're on the you know uh, the, the the Jack tweet storm was insensitive side right so like you saw two sides really quickly you know pop up which is the oh, you know, don't bash him. Like, let's be positive. He's taking care of himself. Fred Wilson puts out a post. And then you have the other side, which is he's insensitive, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have everything in between. Like, oh, you know, you're only reacting this way because, and you don't know anything about Myanmar and what's what's going on there uh, and your fake outrage. You know, so like, describe where you fall on the spectrum of, of things, you know, uh, you know, your reaction. I think it's all those things. I think that's the sort of the problem with both tech and how tech is perceived and written about and portrayed is that you can be engaged in something that could be personally quite fulfilling you know um that may not at all relate to your company so on and so forth um in the same way that you took a shower this morning and that has nothing to do how with do you know i took happen. a shower this morning yeah actually we we're going to talk about that but yeah. but they, we are in a small little room. smelly yeah no <laughs> um but so it's not to say that every single action that jack takes in his life has to somehow relate but is it tone deaf to go to a country where all of these things are happening, where there is a huge um, amount of news even? I don't, it's not that he should be unaware of these things uh, around the role that social media, specifically Facebook, but social media played in um, the Rohingya and what's happened there. 
Um, and to not acknowledge that at all, um, it's not to say that every single bit of his experience, but instead he was even like, everyone should go to Myanmar type of thing. Um, on the other hand, the 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 way that I think everyone, so I think when I saw it, I just looked at that and I was like, this is tone deaf. I mean, that was my reaction was just, that it's stupid, it's tone deaf, and it kind of epitomizes what everyone hates about the valley, right? And these Teflonic filter bubbles. You know yeah. what else is tone deaf is Yasha's jacket today. It's pretty, I got to say. Shiny. It's pretty loud. Thanks. The the scarf and the jacket combination. I wish we could we could give people a thanks, Anil. A look at it. I feel good now. <laughs> so I'm really curious. I mean, I know we're talking about something that's somewhat abstract, and that it's Twitter, and it doesn't have a geolocation locked to it. We're talking about the CEO of Twitter, but is this more endemic of what's going on in San Francisco? Is this Teflonic filter bubble thing something that you just feel like as a part of San Francisco or the Bay Area as a whole? Well, I think, and, and sorry, I didn't. I didn't. I think I didn't fully finish my thought on on the last question i think the problem is that what happens is that we we as just humans right forget about tech for a second we love these simplified narratives people are either good or they're bad um you know mark zuckerberg is this like child gone out of control or well no that's not right that's that sounds too like like a celebrity but what i mean is just we we, we put everyone in these little buckets that are super easy to categorize so i guess cheryl sandberg would be a great one right now because she's taking all this heat and everyone's decided that they're gonna they're gonna pin all of this definers, public affairs, um, oppo research stuff on her. When it's probably a whole lot more complex than that. But no. But the easiest story is Sheryl Sandberg, who is this great feminist icon, but she's not. You know. And so in that same way, I think what happens is you have on the one end um, a lot of the people working in the companies, and certainly people at the very top, who I think believe so much in the marketing essentially the internal marketing and external marketing spiel that they've kind of put out there that they and they're surrounded by people that look exactly like them and think a lot like them mm -hmm. and and so it becomes this self-reinforcing thing and then on the other hand you have people outside of the valley or they might be kind of adjacent to it like reporting on the valley um who view everything through this kind of conspiracy theory lens tech is so evil and everything becomes this huge dystopia narrative and the truth is almost always somewhere in between and I think the problem with when and, and also the dystopia sells right like that's the other problem is you know the, there were the congressional hearings yesterday with Google and it, it was always going to be theater just like it was with Facebook right like there was never going to be any substance there there's never a substance in a congressional hearing and it's not to say they shouldn't do them at the very least the function of a congressional hearing seems to be to scare a company enough to know that that Congress is watching but it's all theater mm -hmm. and yet the reporters have to report on it. They have to fit things into, like, again, the dystopia of tech being all evil. Um, and and so I think that's what's what's difficult is if you're on the side of we're doing great things, you don't even engage with that stuff because it's so crazy. Well, let me press you on that a little bit because you just did – you wrote a book mm -hmm. satirizing tech. Mm -hmm. So in a way, would you say, you know, you're contributing to that narrative and, and uh, you know – yeah, I so I I mean it'd be interesting I don't to hear what people who've read the book think. Um, well, I think the book is very much. I think it's actually quite loving in a lot of ways. Like I think it's very appreciative of a lot of the really unique quirks of the valley and the personalities and the the innovation, right? The the fact that just the 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 way that what seem like insane ideas, how they're born or how small things all of a sudden combine with others. And next thing you know, you're building something huge. 
Like, I think that's super inspirational. And having lived in, I don't know, 10 different countries, I've never seen the kind of entrepreneurialism and the kind of creativity that I see in tech, um, at least the thinking from like a business lens, as I see in, in the Valley. And so I think there's actually a lot of that that's captured in the book. But I do think that a lot of, there, that, that there comes with that a lot of other issues that often get swept under the rug. And that's what I was trying to address was I wanted something that if you were a tech person, you were coming in, that you would recognize so many of these things, things that you like or things that you think are funny or things that frustrate you, but you'd stick with me long enough to get at some of these broader points too around some of the hypocrisy and some of the, the big issues that I think tech raises. So is it, are we just um, kind of destined to live in this world where there's a spectrum and we're constantly trying to push people to either side of the spectrum, but you really want people to be in the middle? Is that a, is that a thing that can actually happen here? <laughs> I mean, it, I, it's not so much that. What I really wanted, I mean, I think that's a valid question. To What I wanted from the book was I really wanted people to read it and listen to it and not immediately assume that I was calling them evil because I think it's very rare the person that hears that they're a horrible person and they work for a horrible company and they've made horrible life choices that all of a sudden is like, oh, wait, really? Like, tell me more about that. Tell me more about how I'm a horrible person. I mean, those people exist. <laughs> but I think more people are, 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 I don't think most people are fundamentally bad. I think a lot of people who work in tech really want to do a lot of good. And a lot of cases, they are doing a lot of good while also perpetuating other things. And so acknowledging that a little bit and trying to talk to them and come from a place where you, you, you know the world that they're in and you appreciate a lot about it, I think is important if you're also trying to um, convert anyone, so to speak, to your message. Because I think that's actually the biggest thing is that the world swirls outside of these walls and everyone's you know, going on and on about tech is over and it needs to be regulated and it's so horrible and everything's so evil and Mark Zuckerberg wants to do this. Um, but if there's actually going to be a big force that, that changes anything, I don't think it's actually going to be so much what happens outside of the valley. It's going to be the employees because I think the employees of the tech companies are the most powerful force that that exists in the U.S. in terms of changing. Do, do you really think that self-regulation from within organizations is practical? Well, I think the problem is that when you think of regulation, um, I mean, it happens all the time, mm -hmm. right? Like you, you, you as a company set up rules, and whether it's like you're thinking of it from a terms of service point of view or from what the rules are of your internal culture, if you are self-regulating in all kinds of ways. I think what, what happens in, if you think about it in terms of the issues that politicians would go after is that... Um, no, I think the, the companies do a horrible job on this. So if you look at like a lot of content issues, for example, the moment that someone raises a very reasonable debate, like say, um, you know, the platform liability and say sex trafficking, <coughs> and everyone says, oh, sex trafficking, that's horrible. And so then you say, all right, well, what can we do to keep sex trafficking off our platforms? Like, should we go around proactively looking for content that has to do with human trafficking, sex trafficking? Um, and, and everyone's like, well, wait, 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 hold on a second. Because the moment we start looking for this kind of content, then someone else is going to come out of the woodwork, like a music publisher, and say, you need to be looking for all of my videos. So we can't go and look for this horrible, horrific content that everyone agrees is horrific because we don't want to get into this slippery slope where all of a sudden we are forced to look for a lot of other content that would be uh, legally quite onerous and expensive and, and so on and so forth. And, and so that's what happens is that everything, I mean, that was just one little kind of simplified anecdote, but that I think is, happens over and over again out here, which is that you get into these arguments that are always so black and white that the thing that's right to do um, and the thing that would potentially um, halt or slow down regulation because it would show a good faith effort on your part, um, you don't do because you're like, oh, but this and this and this and this will happen. And then the people in the outside world get really upset because all of a sudden you're defending 
human trafficking. Mm -hmm. Well, let's let's talk about different sides here for a second. You were recently on Tucker Carlson's show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's (laughs) let's let's hear a little bit about that because that was a that was that was interesting. Is he short? Yeah. Like, what? Tell tell us about that whole experience. What was it like? I have zero memory of his height. I I tend to think everyone like I don't. Sunil's the first person I've met in a long time where I was like, you are definitely taller than me. He's got a very tall torso. He's actually, we're about the same height, but his torso is like twice the size it's of a It's actually the human. reverse. You know, you know, I have really long legs and I wear large shirts. And so like, I'm not an XL on the shirt size, but you know, like I'm a 36 length pants. What? Yeah, yeah. But Tucker Carlson. Um, so Tucker Carlson, yeah. Um, it was funny because when the request came in from Fox, I definitely had a moment um, where I was like, I don't think I want to do this. Um, and then I was kind of like, you cannot go and write a book where you like attack the valley for being a monoculture and not engaging enough with the outside world and then sit there and ignore half of the American, like the most popular show in America, the most popular network. Um, and so I, I was very, and then I was like, oh, am I going to go on and just get shouted at? And then I said, you know what? Actually, that'll be fine. Like, I'll go on and we'll argue and it'll all be about search bias because conservatives are so big on search bias and I was like and that'll be kind of fun because it's a dumb argument um and that's not what happened at all I think he he was um we did end up talking about search bias after after we finished taping um but the tv clip itself was very very short and was much more just about I think size and was he a nice guy like what was the experience like like you know uh, yeah, no, no. I mean, TV is just a weird beast to start with, right? Like, you come on, um, and it's you have an interview. It's like five minutes long. So transactional. It's super transactional, but it's also very. I mean, people moan about the decline of, you know, print engagement for newspapers and stuff, or or just long form journalism. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Like, TV feels very. Um, it doesn't feel like you're achieving a lot or really getting into the issues and everything has to be very short and um, punchy sounding. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it it's not an experience I've ever liked. I mean, I don't, one, cause I don't think I've ever been particularly good at it. Um, cause I'm not the most articulate person, but two, because oh, here we go. No, 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 I don't mean that as a self-deprecating thing. I'm just saying like, if you were to look back after we do this podcast and you were to tape each of these answers, you'd be like, Oh, she's a little long. Um, anyway, but so I'm saying like, it's not really like I much would prefer, you know, a chat to a TV thing. But yeah. second, I just think the way when people are coming to TV, they're looking for kind of the hot take, particularly yeah. now. And I, it's an uncomfortable position to be in, to be like, Oh, I'm supposed to person that's supposed to be the person that's supposed to give you that like quick little soundbite yeah. it's a, i listen to the to cnn or different channels when i'm driving home sometimes and it when you take the, the like the television aspect out of it it is it sounds so vapid it's just like <laughs> yeah. soundbite to soundbite to soundbite to soundbite and then commercial and then soundbite to soundbite repeat soundbite it's just ugh, i hope so we hard. i hope we don't sound vapid well it just depends yeah yeah depends okay well we'll you know what don't answer that that one for us don't tweet us don't uh, we don't want to hear about it um so I'm, I am curious. Let's let's talk about Facebook for a second, okay? So let's rewind a few years, and let's just say you're running communications at Facebook. You find out that there's a credible threat from Russia hacking your platform, and you are responsible for managing this whole thing over the past few years. What do you do different from the way Facebook has been running things right now? Describe how you would run communications at Facebook from 2015 to 2018. I think the problem with Facebook and is that, and this goes a little bit to what I was saying earlier, I think there's just this assumption 
that in the same way that on the other extreme, people always assume malintent, and I don't think that's the case. Like incompetence actually tends to be the driver of a lot of bad, more bad stuff in the valley, I think, than malintent. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, on the other side, you've got them kind of screaming conspiracy theories. Well, I think within a lot of these companies, and I would put Facebook in that bucket, there's always just this assumption that what they're doing is right, I think, um, or that the status quo is right. Because something has been this way for a long time, we should continue to do it that way, um, which is kind of ironic given the rest of the Valley's <laughs> attitude. And so I think what's, what you see over and over again with them is something happens, something surfaces. Maybe they knew about it internally, which it turns out in Cambridge Analytica they did, or maybe they don't. Maybe someone else externally brings it to them, but they don't. Their, their first reaction is to, like, deny or to pick out the one thing in whatever that accusation is that they know to be untrue and then they kind of go all in on that as their defense of why the whole thing so is true. untrue and and so if you think of the fake news stuff right it was what was the initial reaction it was like no no fake news had no impact i can't remember exactly the words that mark and cheryl used but it was something to the effect of like it was, it had it was no essentially the idea all. that uh Russians could have influenced the election or a small group is crazy. He, it was, yeah, it, it, um, yeah a little right. off. But. And I think, and so, and then it's the same thing with Cambridge Analytica, right? Say like they don't, the, 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 I think the generally way when you're in a company, if something surfaces and it's bad, the best thing to do is be transparent and, and apologize, like you apologize quickly, you get every, all the facts out there. And in, in cases where you don't know the facts, right, where you have to do some digging and it seemed like they knew certain things about the Cambridge Analytica stuff and other things they didn't know. Then you say, we don't know, like there are still things we need to look into. So we're gonna do that right away. We can't tell you today, but I, I as CEO promise you that in a week or whatever time, I will come back with a full report on what happened. But the moment when you start denying right out of the gate that, that something didn't happen, and even worse when you know it did, like you are setting yourself up for a world of pain with the outside world. Like I actually think the Russia thing is interesting because at the end of the day, um, particularly Russia and ads, right? The ad spend, if I recall, was in the grand scheme of like big marketing budget ad spends was pretty small. It was like 100,000, something yeah. like that. Um, and so you do, and, and obviously $100,000 in, in paid media, and that's a different, that's actually different from talking about like disinformation and, and some of the content that got out there through other means. But like, I do think that in some cases, the media is making even more of that than actually make sense in terms of how that could map on the number side um less so maybe on fake news but i think on the ad side it's, it's a little less i'm a little less convinced but because of everything else facebook has done you're you're sort of trained to not trust them and you're trained right. to to think the worst it's interesting like the the idea that you come out Im immediately and as a person you say i'm responsible for this and i'm sorry that it happened is a it sounds like the right thing to do, but it's really difficult. I don't know that there's an appreciation for how hard it is when an organization's they dealing had with like a problem. Seven things too. Yeah, and they like and they the approach it all similarly. And you got to imagine that there's a big group of people sitting around a room trying to figure out like how to solve the problem, and you end up with the lowest common denominator, which is the feedback from every single person in that room. When really the human response is the one that is the right. One right. To like with. I mean, the, the on Cambridge Analytica, if I recall, like on day one or day two or whatever it was. Um, someone probably in the media had called it a data breach and that got picked up and everyone was saying data breach, data breach. And they were like, it is not a data breach. Right. And you're like, obviously it's not a data. Like there's nothing, no, they're using the wrong words, but it's like a breach of trust. Like what they're yeah. really saying is that it's a breach of trust and that's what you should be addressing rather than this one factual thing. And in the last kind of cycle of bad that they went through with the definers and the opposition research against Soros, it was a similar thing where they, 
they 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 just kind of zoomed in on a couple of details that they saw that the New York Times had gotten wrong, and maybe on a couple of those details, the New York Times did get it wrong. But you, quite often, it's not to say that the media always like gets it right, and sometimes they do get kind of on a kick of like going after a particular company, but like directionally. <laughs> They were right, right? Like that story, if, if it was 3,000 words, I don't know, it was long, or 2,000 words, whatever it was, probably like 1,500 words of that was, ac- you know, like yeah. it was directionally right. And yet you fi- you're fighting, it's like you're fighting against the wind, right? Yeah. So let's just say someone gave you $100 today and you had a choice to invest it in either Facebook stock or Microsoft stock. And your goal is to hold it for five years and maximize your possible return. Where do you put your money, Facebook or Microsoft? I mean, the right answer to this, though, like it just makes you groan at the same time. Is like to be like, I wouldn't invest it. I'd probably give it to uh, someone yeah. who needs it more. Um, but like, that's a dumb answer because that's not really what you're asking. Um, uh, so, who who do I think is around? Are we doing better in five years' yeah. time? Yeah, yeah. How do you maximize your return? Facebook or Microsoft? It's your only your only choice. Wait, Facebook or not, Microsoft? Facebook, not, Google. Yeah, Facebook, Facebook Microsoft. She's probably financially she, conflicted said, in, with Google, so I don't yeah. want to. I pick oh. Microsoft over Facebook. Yeah, you would pick Microsoft. Over yeah, Facebook. I just think that look, this this is like the most uninspiring thing. But um, there is something to be said about boring, mm. and like I think all, we we get so into all these stories of like glory. We all love so much, particularly because a lot of us are living it right or or aspire to have something like that. Of you know the thing that starts in the garage that becomes huge, then you've got the billionaire. Um, we love those stories so much that we, and we love consumer products. They're much easier to talk about. It's the thing that more people can connect around um, that we don't talk as much about um, a lot of the really boring businesses that can change people's lives for the better. And I don't mean that in some like inspirational, let's save the world way. I'm just saying that like, I think the LastPass, if <laughs> it to me has been transformative um, and there are other solutions out there, but like yeah. I use LastPass. Or DocuSign. There are all these things that exist that's in, that we don't that we don't build up as much, and they're, they're smaller companies with smaller impact. Mm-hmm. When you think of all these social things, but Microsoft has been around forever. They went through their like lull. The natural place for them to come out of their like their downside was then to come up, right? And now they're on the upswing, and never you know, and Satya the reformer or whatever, um, and they'll have another downslope. But there is, um, I think, the only reason I put some money on them over Facebook is just because I think they have been around long enough that um, they're forced to be more professional. They're forced to be, um, I think, more strategic and smarter about how they do things. I think a lot of the mistakes that you see at, um, I think you see fewer mistakes at Google than you do at Facebook. You could argue some of that is cultural, and I probably would, but that might be unfair to Facebook. But I think also it's age. Like I do think that the longer you're around, the more you've had your wrist slapped by whether it's regulators or the public, um, the more you're forced to professionalize a bit. Um, and I do think that mm, so it's tech regulation does work. Well, no, no, I never said it doesn't work, but I, I think that the I think the most powerful force in terms of changing companies like fundamentally at a cultural level that then pushes you towards doing the right things are the employees. Yeah. Like and the I think regulation is important, but I think or I think regulation can have an impact. But I think the problem with regulation or relying entirely on regulation is that regulation is slow. Regulation, um, by the time you've come up with a solution, it, uh, you often aren't regulating the thing that you thought you were regulating, that it's changed on its own. So I would never make the argument that, oh, the platform should just always, fig- you know, they should always figure it out and that, you know, regulators should leave them alone. Definitely not. Um, but I, I'm almost, I think my more pragmatic 
thing is I want the regulators to investigate. I want them, there to be a ton of public pressure and a ton of public scrutiny that also pushes the employees internally to do something different to continue and that and that you get into there so that there's a, a microscope but there isn't always these sort of ridiculous things that are yeah. imposed i think it's fascinating for you though facebook google or microsoft hundred dollars where do you put it well the like the most efficient business model in the history of business models in the history of humankind is sitting at google and i think that's a hard place not to bet on over time huh oh wait was i picking between google facebook, no no i i intentionally no. okay. did not include google in your list because, okay yeah but I think that's interesting. And it, when we talk about uh, like people inside of organizations affecting change, like this promising and it's hopeful. Maybe we see spots about where that can happen. But I think there's a much more systemic change that needs to happen in organizational structures to really see that take hold. I'm I'm kind of fascinated by the hire that Salesforce just made or announced this last week, where they hired a chief ethics officer, and and that is very specifically tuned to, or at least the public messaging is it's tuned to how they deal with AI because it's a, a core part of their platform. But I really think about ethics in operations as a complement to people operations. And it, it's, uh, I think it's fascinating, maybe even hopeful, at least in my brain, that we can start to create different organizational structures that actually empower people within the organization to affect change differently. Um, I think we're getting close on time, which we, is we, we are back saying, hey, look at the clock. <laughs> well, you know, we can we can be a little bit uh, chatty here, but, uh, you know. Um, Jessica, do you like San Francisco? I do. Oh, well, that, I was, mean, that was pensive. That was okay. super pensive. Okay. Well, no, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's bad about it, but yeah, what I don't do you know. like? I've lived in like so many about? different places. I've liked all of them. They all have good things. They all have bad things. What do you like about San Francisco? I mean, the access, being in a city, and having so much access to nature is pretty incredible. Um, I like that, and I like. You've got some cool parks in your neighborhood. Avocado toast? <laughs> no, uh, no, no. <laughs> there, there's a lot of that, and I like that. Um, I don't know. It's, it, it is very um, – uh, it's kind of an outdoorsy city, so yeah. I, I like it. There's a lot that's obviously wrong about it. What's wrong about it? I mean, <laughs> oh, I don't know, like fast income <laughs> inequality, um, the state of Market Street, the, the insularity of it, um, not just – Certainly in terms of it feeling like a tech monoculture, but also um, I think cities generally just get insular. San Francisco has long been insular. It's just now it's kind of a tech insular. But Do, do you have a favorite neighborhood that you spend time with your family? Um, well, so we just had our third kid, so we just don't leave the house. That's the easiest <laughs> way for us to deal with anything. Um, but uh, we, um, oh, I don't know, Golden Gate Park's pretty amazing. Yeah. Do you think you're going to live in San Francisco in a decade? Uh, probably. You know, I spent almost all of my adult life moving either cities or countries almost every year or two, and so it's been really nice to be in one place. Um, having said that, if you told me or asked me, as you just did, like, would I commit to a city, I get very nervous. Like, I had no problem getting married to my husband, but I have a much greater, like, fear of commitment when people start talking about staying in exactly the same place or... <laughs> Or, you know, for the, it was only a couple of years ago that I, um, I like for the longest time, we just had posters on our wall. It was like our, our, our wherever we lived in the world, it was like a college dorm room type of thing. Um, so it's, it's a big leap for me to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here we go. Here, let me, let me uh, do one more question where we intersect the, the tech stuff and the civic stuff. Okay. So I, I love these, these hypotheticals, by the way. <laughs> so it's just always... It always makes me excited to ask these ones. So, okay. All right. Let's just say London Breed is not mayor of San Francisco today. 
and you have to pick between Mark, Cheryl, Elon Musk, Jack Dorsey, or Sethia Nadella to run San Francisco. Who do you pick? Oh, Satya. Not- he'd, be like, he'd be like the Iron Fist. Yeah? He'd just come in and he'd be like, I'm going to get rid of these 10 things that don't work anymore. <laughs> and we're just going to go all in on like X. Um, the, yeah, for, yeah, I'd, 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 I'd pick, I'd, I think, I mean. What if I added Yasha to that list? Yeah, but then, then who would it be? What about, what if you added Benioff into that list? Oh, yeah. Huh. I don't know, he seems like a bunch of hot air. Really? Oh. A little, but I think his heart's in the right place. Yeah. So I would, the thing I'd be worried about with Benioff as mayor is just, um, I think there's just a lot of like, grandstanding and how much of it would be about civic engagement versus enhancement of the personal brand whereas like Satya who I know nothing about um, I kind of like that I know nothing about him you don't see these like massively long profiles and I'm you know I actually don't know how he is on the philanthropic side but I'm guessing he probably does some I like that I've yet to see the Satya Nadella Children's Hospital yeah you know Um, we'll just give it time what about Jeff Bezos I think he'd be in the bucket of like Satya coming in and like getting things getting things done. I mean, he'd probably make it so that no one needed to work in the city, and that would probably also be a big, big problem. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going. I'm going Satya. Like, I've suddenly come away from this podcast being like Microsoft, (laughs) which I, which is not even a company I've ever liked. Yeah, as the takeaway to buy Microsoft stock. No, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that. Plus, we don't want to commit securities fraud. We don't. You know what? We don't advocate for any specific companies (laughs) on this is your life in Silicon Valley. We have no financial conflict with Microsoft as well. I don't know, through mutual funds? Yeah, I, let's not say any of that. Yeah, let's not say anything. Yeah, like, scrap everything we just said. Well, here if, you guys said you weren't going to edit the podcast. Yeah, at we're not all. giving All any... of a sudden, this like, is going to drop off. You're like, we'll just cut that whole part out. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, while we don't give stock advice, what we always do do is ask our guests to give advice on the channels that they spend their time in and the people that they'd recommend following. So if you were to pick across all of the networks that you spend your time in, and you could even throw books in there as well, do you have a recommended follow on a network or a recommended book that you'd like to tell the listeners they should spend some of their energy on so I in addition o- to your book uh yeah i only started doing using twitter um in any significant way about two months ago and it was because of the book and everyone was like you need to do twitter so i've, I've given myself to the end of the year to do twitter and then we'll see what happens um it's 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 fun and kind of delightful and horrific all in the same go um so we'll see uh Facebook, I'm largely just like a lurker there, um, and uh, Medium, I'm really liking. Like I, like I really enjoy. Um, uh, I hadn't used, you know, I occasionally get someone would share a Medium article with me, and I'd look at it, but I hadn't really spent much time on the app or on the site, looking or browsing content. It was mm-hmm. always just someone shared something with me, which I imagine is an experience for a lot of people. Um, but once I started using it more often, I loved. I think there's something really fascinating in how they're doing recommendations. Like their whole recommendation engine is so much better than, um, you know, if I'm on the New York Times and I read a story about frogs, then it'll show me the most five recent stories about frogs, which is great. But two months later, when I go back into the New York Times, they 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 have not retained my passion for frogs at all, right. even though they are totally targeting every single thing I, mean, I do. Recommendations are just broken. Uh, horrible, the right? They're but disgusting. But like what I but I find that really interesting on Medium that in the like since the summer that I've been using it, they're surfacing content for me that is in some cases a year old but still relevant. Yeah. That ties to the interest. Like I think that that actually. And I've, I've Do you really have an author that, that you like on Medium that you've been paying attention to because of this recommendation engine? 
Do you know, I it's been more thematic. Mm. Um, so, and, and I like too that the stuff that, when I think of my news app experiences, the, the stuff that they decide are almost too, um, maybe because it's news rather than like long form or it's then kind of human interest journalism too. But because it's news, there's just this horrific generalization that happens. Like for when I was, um, when I was struggling with my toddler, which like, I guess who doesn't, but I was doing a lot of like Googling around toddler stuff. And at some point the news app starts recommending to me toddler death. Like it's surfacing Oof. stuff about toddlers falling out of buildings. And Oof. I'm like, and it's like, because you're interested in toddlers. And I was like, I can promise you, like there is no parent out there that is searching for toddler stuff and then wants to see things about children of the same age of their kids or any age, but yeah. like dying, right? This happened the other day. Yeah, to that story. That, that the story about the horrific. woman and the yeah. horrible. Um, and so I, I've, I've really liked the fact that um, that I'm not getting, I'm not having this kind of almost really primitive, yeah. it seems. The signal's not AI. that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, so let me pin you down, though, on, on uh, Twitter because you're new. Who's the follow that you enjoy the most? Well, I um, I have a lot of fun with Kara Swisher, who I've known for a long time, just because she's so active on Twitter and um, and will definitely go after people that go after her. So that's kind of fun to watch. But she also is um, very like she's also a very kind person, which people don't know. And so I think what's interesting, what what I enjoy about all those like Twitter interactions with Kara is that she will actually engage with people, and she's not just there kind of for the likes like she, but she's joining she's us later today <laughs> yeah um so so i i like following kara cool. cool all right well jessica this was awesome thanks for thanks for joining us thank we you hope for we, taking time yeah hope you hope you enjoyed it yeah thank you so yasha are you gonna write a, a satire book on silicon valley god i feel like i need to but you know i'm not gonna live here in 10 years so i feel like most of our guests unfortunately uh say that they're gonna they're gonna peace out it is a kind of an interesting dynamic where there's so much enjoyment that people get from their time here and quite frankly, a lot of prosperity, but there's this like, eh, I just don't think I'm going to be here in 10 years. You know, I, I think that one of the takeaways from this, uh, this interview with Jessica is, you know, how at the end of the day, we are all just people and we're, we're trying to make it work here. And I, I kind of want to reflect on that a little bit more. Yeah. And, and that's something we shouldn't forget, but it's very easy to forget. Very easy to be a, a social media bully or a thumb thug, two thumb thug. Two thumb thugs. Hey, uh, the, today was a great conversation, and we appreciate your time listening. If you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed putting it together, um, please go back to the app that you found this podcast on and rate us five stars. Leave us a comment. Thanks for joining us.